you know, what, when I was in prison, effectively, you know, there were so many things that, that you know, my mum said to me when I was uh, when I was a little boy that, that you know started to come back and started to have real relevance. And I, you know, in in a lot of cases, I actually understood finally what she was talking about. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today's guests, Ruth McFarlane and Dan White, are business partners and co-founders of the social enterprise Doing What Really Matters, which has the aim of significantly improving access to higher education for people in prison. I'm not going to give you long introductions because in a way I think your stories are integral to how Doing What Really Matters got started. So just really like to give you both a warm welcome and thanks very much for coming on, on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, Dan and Ruth. Thanks very much for coming along to meet with us today. Perhaps we could start by you telling us a bit more about um, doing what really matters, um, that organisation that you've started and what the organisation aims to do and why there is a need for it. DWRM is, we, we usually use our, our acronym, um, which is for our initials as well as conveniently for our sort of strap line of doing what really matters. Um, what we're really aiming to do is to um, create a much greater culture of acceptance across a whole range of institutions, um, universities, um, within prisons, but also society in general by giving opportunities for people to demonstrate that they can um, participate fully in society once they leave prison by creating opportunities for people to engage in education when previously they might have been excluded or not catered for, um, and for people to have high aspirations and goals and meaningful careers. Yeah, and also from uh, probably, a, 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 you know, from a self-change point of view, it doesn't matter how many offending behaviour programmes or courses uh, or how much time a person may serve uh, in prison. Self-change is, as it says itself, is self-change. And, you know, the, the most effective way, the most complete way for a person to engage in that self-change process is to be able to shed the person they thought they were, the person they see themselves as, the person other people see themselves as, the labels they've been given and carried for any number of years, and to you know really affect their own attitudes and beliefs, and effectively then as a result their behaviour. That is all part of that self change process, and you know what I really realised, what we've come to really understand and realise is that that self-change process has to be linked to or based on something substantial, something that takes time, effort, you know, willpower, resilience, all of these, all of these factors to be able to create that change, that complete self-change. Now, one of the, you know, we would think one of the most obvious tools. However, you know, it, we've come to realize that 
it isn't, you know, it's not so obvious, at least not for those who um, are engaged in, you know, running prisons, keeping the public safe, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the most, the most obvious route to that is something that, that someone can be proud of, something that they can actually hang a whole identity on. And, you know, these are different forms of education and training, effectively. That's great. But just to make sure I've really got a grasp, so is what you're doing, and I, I know this is an, an overused cliche these days, are you building and providing pathways? Is that the sort of thing? That's exactly right. You know, as I said, you know, you know again, that self-change process is something that you have to work it walk your soul so you know for it to have any kind of effect it has to be something that is done by the individual their soul so handing people things giving people you know handing people a new life or handing someone you know, any amount of money or whatever that may be opportunities is, is one thing but for it to actually you know take hold of the of the individual for it to actually have some real depth of meaning and, and relevance in that person's life. It has to be something that they do their self, and that is walking that path. But if no path exists, then, you know, they, they're effectively beating their way through a forest. So what we want to do is create a pathway for people to walk their self. And, and the way that we're doing that effectively is, is we partner with universities and other education institutions to offer their courses to people in prison um, on a distance learning basis. And we talk a bit more about how, how that actually works. And so we are sort of like the bridge, really, between the institution and, and the students. So we provide some of the admin support. We also provide a lot of that study skills support um, to people through a whole range of means. And then when people are released from prison, we support that transition, either to continue with their studies or um, into a career pathway. Um, and so we offer um, sort of ongoing mentoring, coaching, advocacy support for people when they're released so that they can complete that qualification, um, have, as we've said, high career aspirations um, and yeah, achieve those, those goals. So, if, sorry. No, carry on. If, well, I was just thinking for the sake of listeners who might not be all that familiar with what happens traditionally in education in prisons, how does what you're aiming to do um, differ from that? Why was there a need for your organisation in, in particular? So the the um, the core provision in prisons is is really quite limited. The education provision um, it's focused at levels one and two, which means it's equivalent to sort of GCSE type level, age age sixteen. Um, there's a very limited provision of maths, English, um, education for speakers of second of another language, and IT. But the IT provision is um, very outdated. I think it's fair to say. Um, and there's some limited vocational training that is dependent on the specific requirements of, of each individual prison population. So really beyond your sort of maths and English functional skills, there isn't really very much more available. Um, as I say, there might be a little bit depending on um, what that particular prison education department offers, what the governor might choose, but certainly in terms of progression, 
to what we call further and higher education, college and university, there's really very little on offer. So, so how did you become aware of this need? Is, is it just obvious to somebody like you? Well, it, it, I suppose it's, it's, it's a bit it's a bit of a misnomer to say it's obvious to, to some, it's obvious because of uh, the places in which we've, we've both you know come from effectively. <clears throat> so for me, um, a person with lived experience of the criminal justice system, extensive lived experience. This is, I can't even call it a pathway. I had to forge my way through and whilst doing so, you know, I started to notice the, the inherent changes within myself, within my thinking, within my attitudes and beliefs, which were effectively a fortunate byproduct because they weren't the intention. I didn't, I didn't start my educational journey, you know, with the intention of changing myself. I didn't really see, you know, I don't suppose anybody really sees how they, they're supposed to change their thinking and attitudes, etc. But it was something that just started to happen naturally as I, you know, the further down that journey I got. And it was it was based on not just the study in itself, but all the barriers and the obstacles and the difficulties that that, that came along with it. That, you know, helped to build my my resilience because I'm an entirely focused and determined individual when I'm you know when I'm I'm on the right kind of path or seeking the right kind of outcome and so uh, yeah once I decided that I wanted to achieve something educationally then you know all of these other these other attributes came along with it and for me I'm I'm a teacher um I've always worked in um sort of supporting people who are not well provided for by mainstream education. So um, I've worked in pupil referral units, I've worked with children in care, children excluded from school, I've taught in prisons. Um, and it really, for me, it's always been a case that um, I think that um, there's a lot of people who don't fit the, the box of, of uh, mainstream education and who are not included, not well catered for. Um, and so really this is a sort of an extension of that. Um, it's about trying to um, tap into people's intellect and abilities and create a sense of belonging and um, really kind of develop those study skills. And you know, Dan's a classic example of somebody who's gone on to achieve fantastic things in spite of, <laughs> rather than because of the support these had. So yeah, and this is where our path started to, to cross and align effectively because as Ruth quite rightly said, um, you know, in hindsight, I was quite a bright student in school in my early, you know, the early part of my schooling years. However, school was not uh, a hospital, a very hospitable place. Um, you know, my, my school years were were unhappy like which I suppose is a lot of people's stories but yeah I, I was you know I was in a school with a massive class size um, we had a lot of teachers that weren't very motivated shall we say to you know to, to engage their students it was either he was involved or he wasn't and 
because of that, I, you know, I ended up leaving school. In fact, I was excluded from school, um, and then and then left. So it was only once I'd, you know, I'd, I'd reached a place that I did, you know, once I once I came into contact with the criminal justice system that I decided to start that education journey again, and you know that. You know, as, as I said before, once I had started to, you know, reignite my love of, of studying, of education, of, of learning effectively, that also became something that I started to look around me and see that spark in, in certain others, but because of the difficulties that they would, they would face just, just trying to get onto educational courses and whatnot. But, you know, I always seem to be able to see a solution or a way to be able to achieve what I wanted to do. So I, I started to feel that kind of sense of responsibility where I would always give, you know, of my knowledge or of my experience to others around me or, you know, effectively try to help them to, to get onto whatever they were to do or help them to complete or to, you know, start to fill the, plug the gaps effectively of the, of the you know, the, the, the study skills that they needed and weren't receiving. So. So really, in an informal way, you've been running this business sort of, you know, without it being recognised as a business. But Dan's been doing this work for many years, having recognised that need. And, and what we've been doing over the last few years is formalising that into a social enterprise and with more of a, you know, kind of defined scope and, and making it making it a business effectively. So it sounds like a very brave venture for the pair of you to have uh embarked upon really i mean did it seem to seem to be brave for you did you recognize that there might be some difficulties and pitfalls along the way well i mean you know as i've i've said a couple of times already um for me i'm quite a determined and no i'm a very determined uh in fact can be quite dogged in in my approach um when i know something's right and worth doing, then I will always stick at it. I, I never, I've never been a person to see challenges and obstacles as problems or walls or blockages, just the next, yeah, effectively the next challenge that I, I need to overcome effectively, or, you know, I will always find a route too. So for, you know, for, for the, the inception of, of the WRM, it was, it was something that was done out of, necessity you know and so therefore it wasn't a case of it wasn't really a case of me you know or us being uh, worried or scared it was a case of we, we just determined to get it done because of the need for it I think from my perspective I think um yeah there, there were quite a lot of questions about what on earth was I doing and I'm not I'm not a big risk taker by nature um and certainly I'd never run a business before and to be setting up a business with my co-director being somebody who at that time was still serving a sentence um it it was met with some questions and suspicion and um you know but but we kind of just took it day by day step by step worked worked through our business plan we spent a lot of time discussing what did this look like what did what were our values? What did what did we want it to? What did we want to achieve in the long term? We we always had a very clear sight of our long term goal, um, 
And um, so sort of through to incorporating our social enterprise, which was almost two years ago, um, that was very much in partnership. We then had a sort of a hiatus period where I was kind of running the business because Dan was gearing up for release, but wasn't quite out. And then um, in the, the year plus since he's been released, we've been running it very much as a partnership. And I think we feel like we've really established a very strong basis for, for that partnership and, you know, proves in the pudding. We're, we're, we're cracking on and we're growing and we're really ambitious. So I still think it sounds very adventurous on, on two counts, at least, because um, you've mentioned how the prison service education system really was focused on levels one and two, which incidentally, I worked in a specialist unit for men with learning difficulties so even that was a problem since the yeah the the system was quite obsessional they should achieve level two even though it was well beyond mm -hmm. some of them um so so there was that uh, as, as i'm suggesting that kind of obsession with that kind of education so you're suggesting something quite different and then you've just mentioned suspicion that that you were working with with Dan, who wasn't at that point released, and the prison authorities, I imagine, became suspicious. Did they? Yeah, very much so. I mean, understandably, I, I suppose, from the outside looking in, you know, without knowing me, um, or without knowing too much details about, you know, who I was or who I am as a person, um, it would, I suppose, you know, it would be looked at like, why would you be entering into a business with someone who wasn't even, who didn't even have, you know, the liberty to sign a, sign a check, for example, at that period in time. But then, you see, this is, this is where you can see why Ruth is my co-director and why we are engaged in what we, we are engaged in this business, because this is about having faith and being able to see the potential, the abilities, the capabilities of people who the rest of society have written off effectively. You know, this is what's this is this is what gives Ruth that 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 special kind of insight, that special kind of something that has, I, I don't even think there's a there's a name for it. It's, you know, it's quite unquantifiable to be fair. But it is, it is entirely, you know, apparent in her in her day to day and in her personality that, she, you know, she has something about her that, that, yeah, enables her to see just a person and not all the all the social constructs that that you know we as society see first and foremost about people. And I think for me, it's part of a kind of it's it's a it's a genuine commitment to equality. Um, and I hope that our partnership is demonstrating that. Um, and um, you know, well, just while you're thinking, I can, you know, I can hear, really hear Dan's appreciation of the fact that, uh, that you, Ruth, were able to, to see good in him and see his potential. And that's one of the themes that has regularly cropped up on the podcast, that for uh, people with lived experience, somebody noticing their value and worth and having belief um, and instilling that that belief in them that they mm. could achieve something and how important that is. 
Yeah, well, I've just remembered the other thing I was going to say. Oh, Sorry. So, so firstly, it's part of a, a genuine commitment to equality, which I think mm. is demonstrated in our partnership. But it was also about recognising that what we each bring to the partnership makes, you know, it's like the, the, the whole being greater than the part than the individual parts. And so we each inspire things in each other. So it's not just about me recognizing something in Dan, it's about him recognizing something in me as well. And so it's, you know, it's not just me saying, oh, look, you could do really well. <laughs> you know, I recognize that, that ability in lots of people um, and, you know, part of what we do as an organisation is, is to, you know, bring people on and encourage and motivate and employ them, you know, that, that's part of our commitment for our business. But it's, it's recognising kind of that, that magic that you get when there's a spark between two characters. And obviously we're from very different backgrounds, but we share so many of the same values, interests, you know, we, we both did the same degree we wrote our dissertations on the same topic without having known each other. You know, we discovered this much later down the line, but we have a really shared academic interest, a shared belief system um, in spite of our very different backgrounds. And I think we could see that in each other and we could see the extra that would be created if we had this partnership going. You know, it wasn't about Ruth seeing good in me first and first. It was more about her recognising that here was someone with, uh, you know, a natural ability to be able to to do what, you know, hundreds of thousands of people out there try and, and fail every day. You know, people start businesses all the time, and you know, as much as as much as um, you may think you know about a person, you know, outside who you may decide to partner with and start a business with, unless you know, unless you both come from you know, similar background or you've seen that person run a business before, then you're taking the same risk effectively. You know, you don't know whether that person that you decide to risk your livelihood with and, you know, your future and what whatnot with, you, you're never going to know whether that person's actually able to, you know, to be able to, to manage, to be able to make it work, to be able to overcome any difficulties and, you know, rise to the occasion effectively. So, you know, when you... <laughs> Weirdly enough, you know, somebody who has had, you know, contact with a with a criminal justice system, you're, you're talking about someone who effectively you would know so much more about than anyone else that you'd know outside on the street because, you know, everything's documented, every pass, all the negatives, all the pluses, you know, they're all there for everyone to see. So, and then I suppose, you know, it's it's quite. It was quite obvious to, to Ruth to be able to see what I was able to do, considering what I had already done. You know, you know, in in so much more difficult and challenging circumstances than you know what what you would usually encounter. So being able to see, it's quite obvious that well, this is someone who's been able to achieve X, Y, and Z despite being you know in the situation that he was in. So I suppose that would give you a lot more confidence that when it comes to starting and running a business. This would be someone who would be a lot more capable of doing so. But also Absolutely. from a rational business perspective, you know, we, we play to our strengths. Um, you know, Dan brings a very different set of skills to me and we absolutely maximise on that. We know that I'm good at the lists of the organising and he's, the, you know, he's good at the sales pitchy stuff. And, you know, but equally when we get together, the dynamic of what we achieve um, is really exciting. And I, you know, I think that that's part of, the, the sort of the adventure of running a business, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And that certainly comes across the chemistry between you in terms of creating something that's much bigger than than each of you individually. And certainly I wasn't meaning to imply that that um, you were a charity case done that was being taken <laughs> on. But it's more about the the perspectives that wider society has towards people in, in, in prison. Mm. And clearly, I mean, what comes across is your drive and determination and um, being a, a significant factor in the partnership as well. Um, so, yeah, so sorry if it sounded like I was saying you were, <laughs> you were not carrying an equal weight within the relationship. Right, that's right, so have you got a, uh, a good working relationship with the prison service now? I mean, again, this is this is one of those things that that my good relationship with you know the prison services in one aspect has been able to transition into good working relationships, you know, as, as a business owner now. Um, you know, what, when I was in prison, effectively, you know, there were so many things that, that, you know, my mum said to me when I was uh, when I was a little boy that, that you know started to come back and started to have real relevance. And I, you know, in in a lot of cases, I actually understood finally what she was talking about. You know, when you know simple things like um, having good values and and you know good morals and principles and you know being polite and carrying yourself well. You know, she's, she was used to say to me, you never know who's, who's watching. So that, you know, the way I carried myself whilst I was completing that sentence, obviously, you know, translated into, you know, individual establishments and, and, and the senior management teams that ran them, you know, being really receptive to what I was approaching them with effectively because I carried myself well while I was, while I was there. Um, they saw the, you know, they saw the work effort I had in, in one respect. So that was, you know, it was easily um, transferable in, in, in another. So, you know, that was a very good start. And then obviously Ruth having uh, her side and, and working with prisons, you know, in an educational sense for, you know, for many years previously. So combined, we'd already had a multitude of very good, you know, relationships with a lot of the, you know, a lot of their prison estates. So, you know, the rest, the rest started to just show as we started to grow. What, what we're really finding is, and, and Dan probably wouldn't say this himself, but um, partly he just has an ability to engage and um, get on with people from all backgrounds. So like when he goes into prison, now on visits and and he started doing that remarkably quickly after being released which I was a bit anxious about but he was like no I'm gonna do this you know he 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 can talk to the governor at a strategic level because he understands what the governor's priorities are he can talk to the education manager about sort of day-to-day stuff and you know how what sort of barriers and things might be in place, what support might be required. And of course, he can talk to the men and women on the wings about his own personal experience. And that is proving to be um, sort of invaluable, really, that sort of personal interaction. So when he is going into prisons and talking about what we're wanting to achieve, you know, it's kind of quite an easy sell, really, because, but because of his ability to engage in this way and to recognise what people's priorities are, what do they, what are their goals, what are their concerns. He anticipates things well, and that's what he's always done. He, he thinks he's a deep thinker, and he's always thought a lot about what might happen, and, you know, he plans for it. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of it, it's, you know. 
Thanks. And uh, I really liked your example there, Dan, of how things can lodge in the mind, in, in your case, from your mum, and come to the surface maybe years later as you develop some greater understanding of that uh, comment and that context. Exactly right. Naomi. Yeah, is there, is there any cut-off in terms of whereabouts in someone's sentence they are for you to take them on? Do they need to be do they need to be at a certain point in their sentence or do you take people at all stages? Well look, see this is this is something that I know that you're probably gonna ask about um, you know the funding which links to this. So I, I'm gonna kind of ask both questions. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um so there is no there is no point, there's no cutoff point, there is no starting point apart from where that person wishes to start from. Um, you know, you can't, we're not turning anybody away. Um, that, that's just one of the things that we decided that, you know, from the very, very beginning, that at the end of the day, we weren't going to, you know, make the, our population smaller than the, the prison population. Our population is as big as the prison population effectively. So there's real practical challenges, obstacles and barriers to, to, to us, you know, working in, in this way effectively. But and one of those and which is a major, major issue is, is the issue of funding. So as we all know, you know, we're not we're not handing people free, you know educational courses and, and degrees and whatnot because we're just not in a position to do so. I'd love to be able to, but that's not the case. So, you know, students in prison, which is something that I'm not sure many people seem to really understand or even know, is that, you know, people have to apply for, for student loans and funding like anybody else out here who can't afford to just self-fund. The issue with that and, you know, it... it it makes absolutely no sense to be fair, but the issue that's in place is there. There is a, there's a point at which, you know, somebody with infinite wisdom has decided is the point at which uh, somebody in prison can be able to apply for a student loan, at, which is a six year point. However, you mean six years before the, the six they years have to be within six so years in, actu in actual they have to be within six years of release date and or a parole date. Yeah, to be able to successfully apply for student funding, for a student loan, which makes no sense. Well, <laughs> it, it, it makes no sense in this respect. Yes. So there's multitudes of research that, you know, we look at reoffending rates, uh, we look at the things that cut those reoffending rates, that exacerbate those reoffending rates. Um, and then we look at the different length sentence lengths and you know the, the, the different sentence lengths and, and their relation to reoffending. So one of the one fact of, the, of, the, of that is that those with longer sentences generally tend to reoffend a lot less. Now, if you've got a long sentence to complete, however, if you know, these are people with long sentences. They they was given long sentences because they were engaged in a much more serious type of offending. So that in itself tells you that if that person reoffends, then it's going to be a lot more serious than someone with a short sentence. So you would think that you'd you'd want to ensure that those people are the people that you 
not necessarily focus on, but ensure that they are not reoffending because they're going to create victims, create a lot of harm, a lot of damage, you know, in a lot of cases. So engaging someone in something long-term, throughout their long-term sentence, you would think you would enable these people to be able to study, you know, take on a student loan. Now, I know there's practical reasons why, but at the end of the day, you know, you could means test it against, you know, what it costs to keep someone in prison for these amount of years and effectively how much it would cost if they were to reoffend. That alone, that figure alone, let's not, let's, the amount of time that a person's in prison is already done. But if you look at the potential for that person to reoffend, the type of offences that they would, you know, they would be, they would be committing and everything that surrounds that from, you know, the, the detection and arrest to the court process to them being resentenced, the amount of money that would cost versus allowing that person to take on a student loan, which, okay, we know a percentage won't pay back just due to, you know, life or not being able to get employment or whatever that may be, but a, a large percentage of that will be repaying those loans. So, and even for that money lost against what it will cost to keep them in prison for that amount of time, you would, you would think it would, you know, it's a no-brainer, effectively. The, the logic behind the six-year rule is that it should take about six years to complete a part-time degree and that once people complete, they need to be in a position to get a job and, you know, potentially start repaying their loan. There was some modelling done um, two or three years ago, which showed that um, actually, the, as Dan has said, the benefits, if, if somebody on a long sentence was able to start studying much earlier, partly they've got the potential to progress through undergraduate and potentially some postgraduate study as well. But that also, because of the, the known reduction in, in reoffending rates, um, there would be a, a massive net benefit to the public purse, even if people never actually repaid their student loans. The, the cost of them not going back to prison is so beneficial in so many ways, not just the financial cost, but the, the benefits to society in terms of you know, reduced harm and reduced numbers of victims. But unfortunately, because it's one pot of money is from Ministry of Justice and student loans come out of Department for Education budget. It's about trying to join up all of those conversations. And there's a lot of organisations who are lobbying to get that changed, who recognise the significant benefits that this would bring. Yeah, and we're, to, we're definitely just, one of them. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, and you know, just to compound that, you know, we've got we've got stats that, you know, because we know everybody loves a stat. <laughs> But, you know, if you just look at the general reoffending rate, which ranges from between 48 to 56 percent over between the one and two years after release versus somebody who's completed uh, an undergraduate degree whilst in prison, their reoffending rate is six percent, six. And uh, even though the, the numbers are very small and it's, it's hard for them to get, a, a, you know, a, enough of a, uh, enough statistical evidence to, to really back it, but for postgraduate, the reoffending rate currently is at zero. So when you take those two stats, in, you know, in comparison to the general reoffending rate, we should be getting everybody to this level. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what what support do you provide to people in prison? What is it you actually are you supporting them in in finding a way to navigate the that system um, or do you provide other other ways of supporting them well it's it's you know it's it's a whole cross-section of, of support effectively so which ranges from 
us first of all forming those partnerships and creating the opportunities for them to be able to study so you know and then so effectively we've got to the point where you know our potential students are picking up perspectives and seeing actual bricks and mortar universities choice of of study of um, subject area accredited yeah the whole the whole range so they're seeing that so that's the pathway created initially and then on top of that we would then provide you know advocacy where where necessary um we will have you know one-on-one conversations with universities for you know individual students um helping them with, with study skills uh, providing access to their university providers their education providers you know something that being part of be, you know being able to study is one thing but studying in isolation can be as difficult and as lonely and as depressing a journey as, as not studying at all and just sitting behind the door. You know, being part of a, a learning community, feeling connected to your university and to, to other students without ever actually physically seeing or, or maybe even speaking to them. Like, that's what we, you know, these are the kind of things we provide so that our students feel actually part of, you know, that, and enjoying that study experience you know, it, it, as closely as, you know, to the, the general population students as, as no, humanly possible within their circumstances. So like we're enabling um, sort of phone seminar sessions with tutors at designated times through, through use of our free phone numbers so that we're not giving out any tutors phone numbers or anything, but students are able to speak to a, to a tutor. And we're providing lots of generic study skills. Um, and um, one of the other things that we want to come on and talk about is, is the technology um, that, that we're developing, <laughs> or that, not that we're developing, but that we're supporting and, and enabling the provision of. Yeah, I mean, perhaps we could move on to that because obviously people in prison are very much technologically deprived, aren't they? You know, mm. even the staff actually, the standards of what people are working with are below other sections of society. So when you're talking about the people who are actually living in prison, then. So we know that it's a very risk averse environment in prisons, that the security has, has um, meant that development of and use of technology has been very slow and, and very um, sort of backward. Um, one of the good things that's come out of COVID really is um, a, a sort of quite a rapid adoption of some technology use in prisons, um, some of it better than others. Um, but we're, we're particularly working with um, a company called Coracle, who have for several years been developing secure um, Chromebook devices, which are offline, um, which have been through um, rigorous testing and, and met all the security requirements, um, and which we're now able to be providing to our students so that they can have access to university study materials, recorded lectures, readings, and so on, which they can use in their, in their own cell. And, there, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of benefits to this, you know, students being able to study in this way, you know, none other than, um, as I said, you know, this study experience in itself, but there's other practical reasons as well. I mean, the idea is to make this as easy for everybody concerned as possible. That is the establishments themselves, the prisons themselves, you know, uh, prison staff, and, you know, the prisoners, you know, our students who are in prison as well. So effectively, them being able to, to be able to study in this way means that they have to carry less books. That means less work for prison staff having to, you know, 
enable these things to be posted in, sent in, handed in, being checked. When, when prisoners are moving from wing to wing or prison to prison, you know, that means they have less to carry. That means less, you know, less, less, just less stuff that, that has to be moved about, you know, as there's restrictions on the amount of a property that a prisoner can, can take on a prison bus with them, for example. Most, you know, when we're looking at an individual's personal property, you're going from, you know, realistically, their clothes, their property, you know, those things most valuable to them. And as important as studying may be, when someone's got a whole bag full of books that weighs about 30, 40 kilos, they're not getting on a bus with me. I mean, when they're faced with a choice of do I leave my clothes, my toiletries and my, my photographs and whatnot, or my books, what they're going to choose the books every single time, which creates, you know, these things practically just create more costs because they get they get sent on later, which all, all these things cost money. So if somebody's got 30, 40 kilos worth of book in a little Chromebook that weighs less than five kilos, then practically they're going to be able to move these things from place to place so much more easily. You know, it's, it's making, it's, it's being more dynamic with the things that are available. And then on top of that, as, as we said before, you know, that student is going to experience studying, you know, the, it's such a beautiful design, the way in which they're laid out. So they're studying offline, but with an online feel. So when they're looking at their Chromebook, when they open it up and they, you know, they're working through and everything's live, all their, all their hotspots are live, they can actually feel like they're studying online, you know, like, like general population students, even though, you know, we know and they know that they're not. So there's, there's so many benefits to, to this arrangement. And then, you know, it also enables the universities and all the other education providers to be able to, you know, be a lot more, they're a lot more accessible when they need to send updates or, you know, the next set of study materials or whatever that may be, that can just be done electronically within seconds instead of it taking weeks and things getting lost and, you know, all of these these things that are day-to-day -day occurrences within a, you know, within a prison. And so people are developing their digital skills as well as the, or their digital study skills, which is, a, again, a really important part of their transition on release to be able to study in the community and, and at the universities. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about how much the world has changed in terms of technology, I think for anyone serving a long sentence, life's going to be pretty overwhelming getting out, just, just looking at the technology, isn't it? But as you were talking, I was also thinking about how there's potentially benefits to other like the library services for instance not everybody who's who's using the library is going to be necessarily wanting to study but actually being able to have access books in that way you could see that that you're opening the doorway pushing at things that have the potential to change the system in other ways further down the line Dan you're studying for a PhD what are you focusing your research on okay so my um my, my PhD is in criminology. Um, so again, you know, the only reason why I'm able and really wanted to, you know, to take on this PhD effectively because the area is one that will hopefully, again, make, you know, things a lot easier for, for prison itself as, as a whole. So I, I'm all about solutions as I'm, I'm sure I've said, and I'm sure that you've probably become aware of by now, but I'm also looking at, so within this area, I'm looking at the, you know, certain barriers to people being able to effectively study. There is a whole tranche of people 
um, that go to prison, that are in prison currently, that have the capability and the ability to be able to study, you know, you have the intellectual ability and, yeah, the, you know, all the other bits and pieces required for them to be able to study at a higher level. But yet there is something that stops them. So I effectively wanted to know what that was. And then I wanted to know, I wanted everyone else to know what that was. <laughs> so this is where, you know, uh, I focus my attention. So more specifically, I'm looking at early childhood trauma or uh, adverse childhood experiences as they're more commonly and, and you know, academically known. So the way in which, um, yeah, adverse childhood experiences can inhibit a person's ability to you know, study at a higher, higher education level effect. That's really interesting because I know um, from running groups where there was some psychoeducational material, just being in a group room, having discussions often triggered for people uncomfortable feelings of being back in the school system, feeling like the stupid one in the class, um, you know, feeling like a failure and all of that could actually make participating in psychological therapy difficult because they're emotionally aroused as a consequence of these exactly. uh, these experiences from earlier on so yeah I'm sure there'd be a lot of value and hopefully when you're further down the line with your PhD you'll be able to come back and talk to us about your research um, yeah definitely so what what's next on the cards for DWRM um well, I mean, I think um, we're, we're all about these um, cultures of acceptance. So um, our university partners, we want, um, we're, we're already starting to see the, the benefits of the engagement that we've had and the discussions in terms of barriers to admissions or pastoral care and the other support. There's a lot of really good conversations starting to happen now. We really want to embed that. Um, not just in the universities, in the prisons as well. And in, in fact, probably more importantly in, in the prisons, that there's a, there's a real lack of aspiration for people who are in prison, mm -hmm. but also there's a sense that people in prison don't really deserve to have good outcomes. Um, and so we want to be challenging that idea um, by giving people a, an opportunity to, um, to demonstrate the you know, success and and of course we've talked about how Dan's proof of that but there's lots of other people who we work with mm -hmm. who are proof of that and we want to be challenging that that culture yeah definitely um you see there is a negative culture in prison I mean prison has uh you know three main purposes effectively which are punishment public protection and rehabilitation so we know that they do the first two very well. Yeah? You know, when the person's in prison, the public are safe. We know prison is not a nice place. And you know, all the restrictions and the things that someone doesn't have when it's in prison effectively forms that, that part of the punishment. And you know, the, the length of time that, that, that they are subject to that you know, ensures those two parts. The third part, the rehabilitative part, that is where the prison service is severely lacking. And it's lacking not necessarily in its ability or its capabilities to do so, but I feel like it's more in terms of, you know, the lack of motivation and in terms of, as Ruth quite rightly said, this attitude that people, some are deserving and some are not. So it's about changing that culture because 
you know, purely on a on a on a selfish level, society thinking on a selfish level, we're a lot more effective if we produce, you know, what effectively I want is for people like myself to be the norm, not the exception. Because yeah. this is the way in which we create real change. This is the way we really impact that re reducing reoffending attitude and, and need that we have within this society. So embedding, you know, changing the cultures so that the prison service as a whole focuses on the rehabilitative side so that, okay, you know, we can't, there's not a lot we can do once a person's already offended. They've, they've done that. That's happened. But what happens after that? And, you know, do we want to perpetuate, as you said yourself, now, you know, when, when, um, going through certain programs, old negative feelings are, you know, they're, they're brought back up, they're brought to the surface, some that are, that are buried in, yeah, but these are constant within these individuals. So instead of perpetuating those negative feelings, let's deal with the fact that these are at least in part the cause for a lot of the, the offending that takes place. So let's address that. Let's change that. You know, we're not talking about handing people anything, giving them, you know, we, yeah, exactly. We're not talking about that. We're talking about giving people the opportunity to make those necessary changes. And that can only be done by, you know, you can't pay lip service to it. You have to actually believe it and fully support it. So changing that culture within the prison system, first and foremost. And then as Ruth said, creating a much wider culture of acceptance within the education um, institutions themselves. And then thirdly, and I feel like most importantly, because as I started with, you know, this, this self-change process, giving people who've never had the belief that they can do any different. Most of the time they, they you know, people think that people in prison think that I'm here now, this is the life that I've found myself in and there's no way out. So I might as well keep doing what I was doing because nobody's ever going to let me do anything different. Well, I want to change those beliefs. I want to change those attitudes. I want to change them to the point where people are understanding that if I do make the effort, if I do complete what I start, then people will accept me as someone because I am someone different. You know, they're able to change that identity and be accepted, that new identity be accepted in our society accepted within these different communities whether it be an academic community whether it be within the workplace you know we're generally just out on the street so that people can understand that they can be a benefit you know i want as i said my experiences like my own you know i i, I do a lot of public speaking and i do so from you know the point of view of a learned and lived experience expert because i've lived these experiences and i've learned them however i want that marketplace to be saturated yeah. whereby so many people have that lived and learned experience so they're coming out you know and are able to to yeah like i said i want it to become the norm not the exception and a growing community of academics who can contribute to policy reform and to research from that background of that lived experience but but who who are you know not there on a tokenistic basis just being consulted in a focus group but who are genuinely running that research or, you know, writing those policies. And we are starting to see that. And we want, you know, we want that to, to really grow and, and become the norm. You can really hear how much education plays has played a role for both of you, actually, in terms of 
being something that's nourishing for you but just as we wrap up the interview are there other things that keep you feeling healthy enough to cope with some of the challenges of, of, of running a business like this well for me myself I mean you know I'm I'm probably going to live on the high of being free for a lot of more years to come so that does it but then you know what happened taking the most joy out of the simple pleasures in life you know I have I have two beautiful boys that I call them boys they're big men bigger than me now <laughs> you know but you know you know having having my kids around me being able to have a real effect on and in their lives is you know these are the these are the things that that yeah they re-energize me you know they they and then to be fair I take so much personal satisfaction when I see guys coming out of prison with new attitude with you know that glimmer of hope and being able to capture that and and you know enable that, that light to be to be brighter every day that every time I see them that that they, there's no replacement for that that in itself is so emotionally charging it's just it, it just it will keep me going till the end of time I think. <laughs> I think for both of us families you know a really big part of that support network and I've, I've got two sons who are also you know tall and hairy um <laughs> But, um, but yeah, who, you know, give me great joy. And I suppose probably also for both of us, exercise is a, is a vital part of, well, probably every day for Dan and two or three times a week for me, but, you know, um, in different forms, yeah, doing exercise is a good head clearer. We often say, oh, I'm just going to need to go for a run and clear my head. Um, uh, so, yeah, probably that's works for both of us, I'd yeah. say. <laughs> Thank you. That's been a, a really nice positive uplifting um conversation actually I really enjoyed really enjoyed hearing about that and you both of you the passion for the work that you're doing really really came across that's lovely thank you great thank yeah you. passionate and inspirational so many mm. thanks <laughs>